Cricket Last Shows with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by John Buchanan. John, how are you doing? Down under? Yes, uh, pretty well, thanks, Neil. Um, certainly I'm healthy and most of the people around me and family are all healthy. Um, so let's, um, let's start where it all began for yourself. So you're born in Queensland. Um, you played a, f- a few first-class games, uh, seven, I believe. But can you just talk about your early childhood, how you got into the sport and your playing days? Yeah, sure. Um, a while ago now, but um, I, I grew up in a, a country town in those days, which was Southport, which is uh, about 80 k's, 50, 60 miles south of Brisbane. But in those days, it was a country town. And uh, I was fortunate that my parents sent me to a, a, a private school, uh, which is some of your public schools, I think, um, boarding school called uh, the Southport School and in those days it was 500 odd students of which about three or four hundred were boarders all coming from you know, Western Queensland and, and northwestern New South Wales uh, from properties mainly um, and so uh, yeah I mean it was a, a wonderful school wonderful facilities and certainly cricket was one of the sports that it um, excelled in over a long period of time. Although having said that, the school was devoid of premierships for, for some time. And um, by my time of leaving school, which is grade 12, I was to play in the first 11, which won the premiership for the first time in 40 odd years, 44 years, in fact. Um, but I, you know, my, my passion was probably born out of my father's love of sport, but also love of cricket. He really enjoyed his cricket. We would travel with other friends uh, from the Gold Coast up to Brisbane, the Gabba, and sit in the stands and, and just watch games of cricket. And it would, I guess it entranced me. You know, I just fell in love with it. And part of that was that you know players were very, very accessible in those days. And um, I guess my dream was to play, obviously, and wear the baggy green, you know. So um, I've followed that through school days and, and then at university and then as you said um, eventually uh, you know I, got, I played one season of Sheffield Shield cricket for Queensland which was during the, uh, the Packer era and uh, you know as I say to a, a number of people you know I made 160 for Queensland in fact my, my first uh, innings for Queensland was 60 odd in the, then the Gillette Cup one day uh, series David Boone was uh, just a young that was his Taboo game as a young 18 year old out of Tassie. And, um, you know, so things started rosily. And then I said, well, I, as an opening bat, I made 160 for Queensland. Um, but if probably you know, uh, a few people know, then if you delve into the statistics, it shows it probably took me about 12 or 13 or 14 innings to, to make the 160. So it wasn't necessarily a successful opening bat, but um, it certainly um, continued to whet my appetite about the game. Uh, but my dream then burst, of course, that uh, I was uh, non-contracted once the the, the um, Packer series players came back, and it was time to move on and do other things with my life, which was getting married and uh, getting a real job, so to speak. Um, and uh, you know that took me away from the game for quite a number of years, albeit that I did stay in touch um, by doing a bit of coaching. And then as my children came along, I became their coach and um you know that came over to the to the uk am i right in saying um yet right, was... time, um in the lancashire leagues um um in hyde 
up north and you also played for Oldham as a player coach. Um, a little word on that period? Yes, yeah, no, I was about to say that uh, one of the um, really enjoyable periods of cricket was, was being this professional cricketer and that, that kind of led into me playing for Queensland. But I had two seasons with Oldham in the Central Langs League as, as a you know, overseas professional. And, um, you know, reasonably successful. The second year, we created a, a double that the club hadn't done, I guess, for 40 or 50 years, and that was winning the, the championship plus the, the one-day title, the Wood Cup. And uh, midweek, I'd, I'd travel um, down to Cambridgeshire and play in the minor counties. And, uh, again, what a, just a wonderful experience. And second season, uh, my wife-to-be came over with me and uh, we'd travel down together, but we'd also a, a companion in the back seat. West Indian by the name of Derek Parry, who played a lot of cricket for the West Indies. And, uh, yeah, just it was a, a fabulous time and, and wonderful memories. And then when you eventually got your, um, your role working for Queensland in the 90s, um, at that time, did you have to get uh, coaching badges? Um, how did you, what was the kind of qualification or was there a qualification to become a, like a coach? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I was on my way to becoming a, what I hoped was going to be this professional cricketer and Australian cricketer, I, I was going through university. So I did complete a, a degree in uh, what was termed human movement studies, which is really physical education. Um, so I had that in, in my back pocket and um, I guess, uh, you know, that, that, gave me an insight into athletic performance and uh, not that I necessarily used that immediately because I went into uh, sort of sports administration, uh, I went into being an academic and teaching and then into government but at the back of all this uh, I did have this uh, I guess physical education background and um, there were a couple of administrators in Queensland Creek at the time that uh, wanted me to stay involved with the game, uh, which I did. So they put me through uh, the various levels of coaching accreditation. So by the time the Queensland job came around, I was I had been coaching uh, in club cricket back at my old club university. I'd spent a bit of time doing uh, coaching in different sports, I suppose. And, and what I discovered was that even in business and even in government, uh, I was actually coaching. I was bringing just a team of people together and, and creating something uh, special, hopefully, um, that we're all pretty keen to try and achieve. So in a sense, that was the message I took to Queensland Cricket when they advertised the role in 1994, that while I couldn't compete with Jeff Thompson, who was the coach at the time, uh, couldn't compete with his cricket pedigree, obviously. But what I thought I was bringing was a real sense of uh, coaching, a real sense of looking at things differently, a sense of um, not being the technical expert, if you like, or somebody with a bit of technical expertise in the area of cricket, although I could play the game. Uh, but I was now bringing a, a different perspective on the way to look at the game, the way to train. We introduced computers for the first time in, in cricket and probably in sport, just about in, in Australia. Um, I think it, the only other person that was going along the same lines was Bob Woolmer in South Africa at that time. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was um, 
just coming into this coaching role, but with a completely different background and a way of looking at it. Yeah, and then you had great success. You had five years um, as the head coach of Queensland, winning two Sheffield Shields. Um, as a Queensland man yourself, a proud moment? Well, it was. I mean, uh, exceptionally so, because Queensland had never won a Sheffield Shield. They'd been in the competition 69 years, and um, my first year, we were fortunate enough to win the Shield for the first time, and that probably ranks us, in terms of coaching, my highest um, point, I guess, because the, in, in anything in life, I think, no matter whether it's sport or business or politics or, or just friendships or whatever it might be, if, if there's a first, um, it's something special. And uh, that, that was, and uh, it, it, it's still very vivid in, in everybody's minds. Um, but yeah, no, it was, a, it was a good period of time. We won two one-day uh, championships, we won two uh, Sheffield Shield, um, victories in, in that time and um, you know I guess that was a bit of a platform for them uh, heading into this strange job. And then just talking on the on your role at, at Queensland and you talked about the philosophies, um, in your opinion the captain and coach relationship how important is that and how did you find that as uh, in that specific role and then moving forward? Yeah, look, I think it's essential. Uh, the captain and coach have a very, very good, strong relationship, uh, or one of them dominates the other person. So it's it's um, you know one person really takes the running while the other is there just for support. But generally, I found in the teams that I coach with, it was a, a good relationship with the captain. It was a reasonably equal relationship, and so yeah, always exceptionally important. It's the same in business. Uh, that CEO, chairman of the board, really need to operate, um, you know, collaboratively most of the time and, and be on the same page. And, and then same for the CEO with, with the um, COO or the CFO, you know. So it, they're really, really critical relationships if, um, I guess, you want some sort of sustained success and if you want to uh, you know, chase... Um, successes that are continually sort of raising the bar. But then actually on the field itself, who would you say is in charge of the team? Would you say it's the captain? It's their team? Well, there's no doubt it's the captain. There's no doubt, you know, that it's the captain. I mean, the coach's role, certainly in cricket anyway, really uh, finishes sometime before the start of play. And, and really then it's it's over to the captain with, with the coach providing uh, what support may or may not be needed at certain times, but it's really captain who runs that particular, um, you know, comp uh, competition or event. Whereas, you know, in the short duration sports, football sports, um, the rugby codes and so on, the coaches obviously have a completely different role. Uh, netball, where they they make decisions on the run to impact the game by removing players, uh, substituting changing tactics, whatever they need to do to somehow forge a win. And then um, after Queensland, <clears throat> you got the role, one-year role working at, at Middlesex. Um, as you said, this was just prior to you getting the Australia job. So that small period, working at the home of cricket, how did you find it? How did that come about? Yes, well, it was um, <clears throat> sort of between my fourth and fifth year for Queensland. And, I guess by that stage, I'd, 
worked out that in, in my view, you know, there is a shelf life for coaching. And so I didn't see myself uh, certainly after year five necessarily going on too much further with Queensland. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate that I received a call from, from Middlesex. Um, they said, uh, you know, we've, we've seen what you've been doing over there and we think Middlesex you know, need the same sort of changes here. Um, and uh, that particular year, which was 1998, Mike Gatting was stepping away from captaincy and I think he'd been captain for 15 years and handed over to Mark Ramprakash at the time. And, um, and so... I, I agreed to because it was going to be a, a challenge, which is something that I, that I like. Um, and it seemed, in a sense, a little bit similar to what uh, I had uh, experienced with Queensland. That a you know, successful um, team, or in this case club, uh, but for the time being hadn't reached the, the heights that they possibly should be reaching because of you know, the facilities or the players that they had or um, the expectations, I guess, both internally and externally of, of, of the club. So um, I went over and, um, and we got things underway. At that particular time, the three English players, Angus Fraser, Phil Tufnell and Mark Rampakash were in the West Indies with the England side. So we did our pre-seasons and so on, got everything ready and, um, you know, that which was great. However, when Mark came back, he, he strongly disagreed with uh, the approach we were taking and, and I suppose there was a bit of a portent to you know, what happened a number of months later but um, I suppose at the time I believed it was an opportunity to try and work with Mark to get him to understand what we were doing here or what I was trying to do was one help him but two again uh, try to get this club up and running as quickly as, as possible back to winning a bit of the, you know, the silverware. But um, anyway, that didn't work out. And it goes to your question before about the, the captain-coach relationship. You know, our relationship deteriorated um, as the season went along and that really created lots of tensions and conflicts within, within the team. And, and ultimately, um, Middlesex probably performed worse than it had done uh, for, for some time. So um, it wasn't a surprise when the, the board kind of asked, you know, um, me what I believe the future should be. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I, I, there's not room for two of us here. And um, certainly having just appointed Mark Cramprakash as captain, there was no way that they were going to uh, go back on that decision. So, you know, um, it was tough at the time, but I look back on that and again, it provided me some, some really good lessons, uh, good insights into coaching, good insights into people. Uh, good insights into culture and so on and, and, and all those things that uh, either you learn from going well or you learn from things not going well all become part and parcel of your, your coaching approach, your coaching philosophy, your coaching values, principles and so on. Yeah, I was going to ask because you mentioned uh, with Tuffer. So, for example, if a player gets dropped, there's a lot of talk about their mentality. Um, they start questioning their abilities. Did you question yourself? Um, because obviously you had the success with Queensland. This was probably your first stumbling block. Um, did you question your philosophies in any way? Or was it just a, a self-belief that this is the blueprint and I've had success before and this is the way I want to move forward? What was your thinking at that time? Oh, look, I think um, any person um, that's 
um, you know, sort of very keen to try to deliver their best self um, almost every day, no matter what the role, no matter what the job, uh, will always doubt themselves, I think, you know, uh, or at least question themselves, or at least question why you do something, uh, why you make a decision, you um, go about the way that you go about things when there might be easier ways to do it. I mean, for me with Middlesex, and it was the same eventually with uh, Night Riders in India when I was in the IPL. The easiest thing for me to do was to agree to uh, both Mark Rampakash and Siram Kangulu's way of going about you know, running the team and running the team culture. But if I was to do that, it meant that I had to compromise my values and my principles. and. I was not prepared to do that. Um, so they were, they were the reflections that I took away from, from those instances. I mean, I think everybody will be in different situations and will have to make those calls themselves at, at their own moment in their own life, you know. But for me, the job was not worth compromising, um, you know, what I believed in and, and my, my value set. So, um, yeah, it... it meant that I did doubt that and I did ask myself a lot of questions and certainly my wife was wondering what the heck I was doing um, by really uh, you know, tossing in what was a, you know, just a wonderful place being at the, the, the home of cricket and Lords and um, you know, being involved in county cricket. Again, that was um, you know, very, very special. But, um, you know, it wasn't to be, but there were lots of, as I said, lessons that came from that, which helped me then in, you know, my future roles as a coach and, and certainly have helped me in my Current role as a coaching and leadership consultant in terms of being able to, you know, see that um, and be able to talk through that with either leaders or leadership teams or you know um, just individuals who sit within a team and, and wonder what their leaders are doing sometimes. And then in 1999, um, Australia win the World Cup. Uh, uh, Jeff Marsh then leaves his position. Um, how did the um, how did it come about in terms of you getting the role? I say that I'm not, I did a piece with Mickey Arthur, and he talked about how he got the role with Australia, how he had to give a presentation, etc. How was it back when you were at your time? Yeah, oh no, definitely a presentation to um, CEO and board members, and uh, you know there was probably two front runners, myself and Steve Brixton at the time. Uh, Stephen Moore was captain, and so I, I, you know most people believe that you know the, the Blues boys stick together. But I, you know, from Stephen's point of view, um, he does. He's a very avid, yes, I've also been a very avid Blues supporter. But what he is is a person that um, well, his mantra was to take the road less travelled. And so what he was looking for was again something different, something. That challenged the existing system, something that challenged the existing players, something that challenged the way the team was operating. And so, in his mind, he, he didn't, I think, want just your, your traditional uh, coach. And, and no, no disrespect to Steve Rickson, who's been a fantastic coach in all the uh, places that he's been, but he, he comes heavily out of, of, you know, that very similar to Jeff Thompson Queensland, just a very, very strong playing background. And, uh, and, and that's his bent and his bias and, and that's how he approaches things. But 
Um, mine was again different to that, and so far as um, I wasn't necessarily there to be a heavy-handed coach. I was there to support Stevens, but I was there to challenge the whole group uh, to be far better at um, themselves first of all, and then their contribution to a team, and then where could they take the team? So it was always, um, you know, my my job. To keep challenging, but also at the same stage to, to kind of make myself redundant, so to step out of it um, and uh, and provide the players with an environment where they could could really extend themselves. You know, one of the the main things looking from looking out. Um, you know, the Australian team had this philosophy of being very aggressive on the field in terms of aggressive field, field placings, um, scoring at a higher run rate than was traditional back then in test cricket, banishing night night watchmans, etc. Um, was that all part of the culture shift that you brought in? Yeah, look, I, I, I certainly was part of that. But as I said, Stephen was very much a part of that as well. He was very much a driver of doing things not the same way as everybody else. And, and for me, uh, it was about, well, how do we change the game? And, and so that's why I think we complemented each other very well. Uh, we're always, he, he from uh, definitely on-field perspective, but me looking at on-field, but trying to work out how we uh, do those things off-field to get ourselves prepared to do them on-field. Um, and so it wasn't just about career playing, you know, it was, it's for me, it was about the whole person as well. So as I said before, just challenging people um, to be better creators, but also be better people, uh, or at least more rounded people. You know, be able to live outside the dressing room if you like. Be able to do things other than just talk about cricket. Um, try to um, broaden your horizons, take in new experiences. And if a player challenged that kind of uh, philosophy, what was uh, what was your response to that? Well. Um, you know, you've got to be able to take both sides because just because um, I think that's the right way to go doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way to go. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way, way to go for somebody at a particular moment in time. So I was always challenge, uh, encouraging people to challenge the system and I was part of the system. I was part of the coaching system, the team system. Uh, and so that, you know, that would regularly happen. That would happen in meetings. And we know one or two people who, who uh, would do it uh, probably a little bit too publicly sometimes. But, but um, you know, that was part and parcel of, I guess, my philosophy. That, um, you know, you were there to give people that opportunity to question things, no matter who the person might be or what the system is, um, and, and, and feel, in a sense, free to do that, you know, uh, without it being foolish and without it being, uh, you know, a waste of everybody's time. So, um, you know, and, and and that was an environment that, you know, you had to uh, understand that um, just because I'm the coach, I'm still one of the group and therefore still subject to the same rules as everybody else. And then when you look back over your Australia career, what were the standout moments? You have so many great times when in the 2003 and 2007 World Cup, 70 out of 89 tests, only lost six out of 35 one-dayers. Um, uh, three Ashes series, is, um, what were the kind of standout moments for you? Winning Probably away, we forgot to say even that, was it like winning away in India in 2004 yeah. for Australians, I do in 36 years, yeah. so many times. Yeah. And that's... Yeah, yeah look, um, 
probably all of those things. I mean, there's a photo behind me there of uh, the 2003 World Cup uh, winning in uh, Johannesburg, which was amazing. But, um, you know, I suppose all those things you've mentioned are sandwiched in between two bookends. The, the first was the first test match um, that I was involved in, which was in my hometown in Brisbane against Pakistan uh, in November 99. And while I didn't have or didn't fulfill the dream of putting my bag of green on and, and being able to walk out there as a player, I was able to walk out there on the, the field as coach of, you know, uh, this Australian cricket team and then be able to sing your national anthem in front of your family and, and friends was, was just something amazing. And, and I suppose then as you recounted all those various, uh, you know, victories and triumphs. But it was again the last game. The last game was you know, a World Cup win against Sri Lanka in Barbados. And, you know, we'd, had, we'd played exceptionally well through that tournament. Um, it capped off two World Cups for me and undefeated. We, we weren't beaten in one single game in either World Cups. Um, and it was a bit of an anticlimactic finish that particular game. But nonetheless, you know, there we were sort of uh, on that stage and being able to hold a World Cup, but just walk around, you know, feel with players and, uh, and acknowledge the crowd, you know, was yeah, very, very special because I, I'd already decided that was going to be the end some 20 months beforehand. And, and it was just a, yeah, a bit of a fairy tale finish. And then if you actually look at your uh, win percentage in numbers, it's up to 79%. And if you compare that to other coaches in other sports that have been given great credit, you look at Vince Lombardi uh, with the Green Bay Packers, I think his win percentage was up 73%. You've got Sir Alex Ferguson, he was at 58. I know it's different sports, but if you compare in terms of numbers, do you feel as if you get enough credit? <laughs> oh, I, I don't think, again, that was ever and still isn't um, one of the things that I do in coaching. You know, coaching, in the end, is, is just about trying to help individuals be better. And then if, if you're in a team environment, you're actually trying to help a group of individuals be better and hopefully achieve something pretty special uh, while you're there. And, um, and I think, you know, the cliche, but the biggest thing that coaches get, it's lovely to win, there's no doubt about that. It's great to be in a winning dressing room, it's great to achieve records and so on. But I guess the biggest thing that a coach can do, like a teacher, like a parent, is that you know somewhere that you've helped one of those people that you've been associated with be a little bit better either as a person or as a, as a cricketer. You know, you've had some influence and, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, I think, the biggest accolade that, that you know, I look for or, uh, you know, so the credit, no. Um, but, you know, having said that, you know, it was about eight years and, and uh, we were a pretty amazing you know, group of individuals who formed a pretty remarkable sort of record over that period of time. Then on the flip side, does it disappoint you that certain members of the team 
uh, post-playing have come out and kind of questioned um, your role in that great side. Probably the most vocal would be Shane Warne. Um, does it disappoint? And a word in your relationship with him, obviously regarded one as one of the greatest. But, yeah. Word on that? On that yeah. relationship? Oh, no. Yeah, no, look, I, I mean, even through the period that we were, you know, doing what we were doing, there, there will always be critics because um, no, no matter how good a job or how bad a job you're doing, um, there will be some people who, who like like you and like what you're doing. There might be other people who are really resistant or dislike what you're doing and there's a mixture in between. So um, that, that will always be the case. I, I suppose what happens when you move into, you know, an international side is that you are exposed far more into the media and there's far more uh, introspection on what it is that you're doing and how it is that you're going about things. And, and then, of course, you know, media really do like to uh, find stories that they can keep alive. And, and often those are, you know, uh, personal and, and, uh, and um, you know, uh, can be unsavoury at different stages. So, um, no, you know, I mean, you'd love everybody to, to love everything you do and like everything you do, but the reality is that's not going to be the case, you know. So, but with Shane, I mean, um, you know, we, we just uh, came from really different backgrounds. I mean, his view on uh, coaches, well, was said there at one stage, you know, it's, it's what gets you from A to B. Um, and, you know, I think he was just an incredibly gifted player and, and possibly didn't realise how good he was, uh, even though, you know, he, he did some amazing things. But um, I think his view was that the type of coach needed to be someone, you know, like Bobby Simpson maybe previously or an Alan Border, you know, those type of players who had played a heck of a lot of test cricket and, and therefore had that street credibility, if you like, about playing the game. And, you know, so from my point of view, I never professed to be that because I wasn't that, you know. And so, but what I did try to bring was, you know, the ability to challenge Shane in different ways, um, you know. And, um, hopefully found ways that that could happen and, and hopefully found ways that, um, you know, he, he really took up the challenge and, and uh, you know, was part and parcel or, or one of the, the small parts and parcels of, of his, his incredible success as a, as a, uh, a great of a game. And then we obviously we've got to talk about the 2005 Ashes regarded as one of the greatest series of all time. Um, didn't go your way, Australia's way. Um, a word on the preparation, though. I had a little uh, interview as well with Stuart McGill. Um, he he kind of questioned preparation. He talked a lot about the the, the Bono thinking caps, um, winning, and then decision making during the series. Obviously, the second Test match, winning the toss um, at Edgbaston with Glenn McGrath slipping on the ball and uh, still deciding to ball uh, to bowl. Um, a word on the preparation and that whole series. Um, you didn't take England lightly, did you? 
Uh, yeah, I think we did underestimate. I think that was one of the one of the features um, in terms of preparation. You know, my recollection was that um, we decided as a group, um, and I maybe Stuart McGill wasn't part of that that group, but um, we had played a lot of cricket. I think um, prior to that series, so we had decided to just get away from it for a while and then and then come back. Um, you know, just just prior to the series and then use the early early games in the overall campaign as a way to get back into the series. Now, in hindsight, probably wrong move because uh, certainly most of our quick bowlers were well underdone and, and uh, you know, probably some of our, our batters as well. So while the break was mentally and physically good, probably uh, skillfully, we were a bit beyond the eight ball. And, and so then that kind of uh, coincided with, um, you know, losing to Bangladesh in our first one-day game, then losing to England, which which gave England a little bit of impetus for the, what was to come. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of started along through those one-day series and got, got through them, but, but certainly weren't playing anywhere near our top. Um, you know, there were a number of other issues uh, that sat in behind what was going on in the field. We'd had... Um, you know, uh, my assistant coach, Tim Nielsen, who was just a, an unbelievably uh, skilled uh, assistant coach, um, he wasn't with us because uh, it was a joint decision that he leaves the team so that he could prepare himself to become the head coach when, when I finished up. So he, had, he went and uh, really did some career development, uh, which was very good for him. But from a team perspective, you know, he was... He was one of the connectors, one of the really important pieces to the puzzle. Uh, had a new coach in, Jamie Siddons, great coach, um, but he didn't have the same connection. And, and, and what I'd done then was, because of that, kind of removed myself a little bit further to enable him to get closer to the players. We had a new physio, a new trainer on. We, we had some uh, conflict with uh, various partners on the tour, a couple of injuries. So uh, when all those things are going on, um, it, it can become a little bit unsettling. And then on top of that, England were uh, playing much better cricket than I think we thought they, they were, albeit that we rolled in the first test match at, at Lords. Um, and and I think uh, Michael Vaughan quoted many times saying that if we had sneaked across the line uh, and uh, edge Baston, then you know, the series was gone. There was no way back for them. But you know that that gave them the lift that they were looking for, and uh, you know the crowds uh, were just incredible. You know? So um, you know when 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 you are in sport and you're on the field, you often talk about if you're away from home, trying to keep the home crowds quiet um, because of the way that you're playing well. Um, the way England was playing was just bringing them into the game all the time. So it was it was an amazing series, no doubt. But um, yeah, we we just went on song. And, I, and again, I look back on that series, and I know that I I just wasn't coaching uh, anywhere near the way uh, or the way that I believed I could. And um, you know, that was again another uh, contributing factor to to us just not being able to probably. Um, put ourselves in the best possible position to win games. We, we got in position to, to 
to win games, but uh, not in the, the, the positions, I suppose, that we were used to. And then England were able to counter that and, uh, you know, get the 2-1 uh, the lead going into the fifth test match. And then you also talked about earlier your relationship with Steve Waugh. Um, during this period now, um, the team's under Ricky Ponting's leadership. Um, your relationship with him, was it a good one? Yes, no, we had a very good relationship. Again, obviously, Ricky had been part of that team under Stephen Moore um, till uh, 2002, where Ricky then took over the one-day captaincy from Stephen when we were in South Africa. Um, and then Stephen remained on, obviously, as, as test captain uh, till uh, 2004, uh, at which time Ricky took over. So, um, you know, we, we spent a fair bit of time, I guess, together and uh, kind of knew each other reasonably well and, and a slightly different leader in, in, um, in approach to Stephen, uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, led by example, uh, a real tough nut. Um, a team person, um, proud of being Australian and, and brought all that to his uh, own game, but also into his leadership. Yeah, so the back end of your Australian career, um, you get the 5-0 whitewash against England, down under, win the World Cup. And then you took on an ambassadorial coaching role. Is that Am I correct in saying? Uh, what was the actual position you took up post um, in head coach? Yes, yeah, there was a... Um, for a year or so with, with Korea Australia, it was um, yeah, basically just that, uh, talking to other coaches about coaching, um, and, uh, you know, I, which I still do, of course. Um, most of these co the coaches now sort of sit within a, uh, a corporate atmosphere, but, um, you know, I still get involved with um, mentor coaching where I can and, uh, and, and really enjoy that. It's, it's nice to be able to observe others and, and uh, maybe pass on some thoughts and experiences which, uh, you know, coaches can choose to use or, or not, you know. So, um, but yeah, that, that was for a year or so um, and, and sort of coincided when I was over in the IPL as well. So, um, yeah, good experience. Yeah, talking about that, I know you, we talked about it earlier about the, your time at Kolkata. Um, now, in terms of the differences, obviously, it's a franchise team, players coming in and out. Did you, I know there, there was some differences between Saurav, Ganguly, etc., as we, as we talked about. Um, but in terms of establishing that philosophy with it being a franchise, did you find that difficult? Um, yes, I, I did. Because, again, you know, um, even though the Australian team only comes together in competition, um, you are with them for an extended period of time. You know, so it could be 14 months, but at least you're with the team, in and around the team for something, when I was coaching anyway, uh, around 250 to probably 270 uh, days a year. So you're pretty close to the team. Whereas the franchise, uh, you know, we, we were together for a, an eight-week period. Um, and uh, it was sort of in hit and run games, you know, day night, lots of Bollywood uh, influences. And, and so your capacity, I think, to build something in a short time frame was not necessarily easy 
And then um, we had owners, Chirut Khan, who's, you know, Mr. Bollywood, really. And he did have a, a really good vision for the for the franchise. He wanted to be something like Man United, but but in the you know the, the cricket world, and that that was exciting for me. Um, but in my mind, to do that, then we needed a number of pieces to be put in place, and, and of course the auction, where you get your players bought in, you know, is one of those ways of doing it. And um, my view was that we probably didn't necessarily buy well, even though we bought some very very good stars, we, we didn't necessarily buy well in terms of building something um, into the future. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it was just a, an incredible experience again to see the first first game of IPL in Bangalore and then Brendan McCullum tees off with whatever it was, 156 or 158 um, and fireworks going off everywhere. That, that again was just a, a memory that's forever etched in my mind. And just a word on that relationship with Saurav Ganguly. There's a lot of talk about this whole dual captaincy thing. Is am I is that correct? Uh, am I correct in saying that? Um, was that the kind of the differences? And well, yeah. Look, what, what I I mean, um, you know, with Saurav, um, and and I said the same thing to Ricky Ponting, who was part of our franchise at the time as well. Um, you know, I just thought the game, this T20 game, had passed them by, or, the, or their skills had in the past, you know, four years earlier, they would have been absolute dynamite. But, you know, just their game wasn't necessarily built on power. Um, Sura's uh, fitness, his running game, uh, was certainly not something that fitted nicely into what T20 was demanding. And I just believed his decision-making in terms of what was needed on the field uh, quickly was was reactive not proactive so um we, and we had these conversations i had them with the owners and, um you know so come the second year when we did replace him as captain i did believe though that we could um, get better team involvement by uh, using a, a leadership team who would combine together to to make the calls um, and so we had Brendan McCullum as our, as our nominated captain. Um, Brad Hodge was there then, and then we had Chris Garland Surab, and that, that was our sort of um, leadership group um, to work out ways and means of, of winning games and, and combine out on the field, albeit that um, you know, there'd be one person that, that had the, the seed beside their name. Um, but in the end, that, that, that really didn't work, um, and didn't work for a range of reasons, I think. Um, but um, yeah, uh, basically towards the end of that um, that second season in 2009, um, the other owner came to me and said, well, you know, we, we're not winning here. So, um, you know, the, basically, um, thanks, thanks for your services, but you're no longer required, um, which was, again, obviously disappointing, um, but um, in a sense, understandable, not getting the results here in this, Cutthroat business of, uh, you know, a, a T20 tournament. And of course, the owners, you know, just are amazing people in terms of the Indian culture and, and uh, so important for them to be um, at least winning or at least uh, being able to hold their heads very, very high and proud people 
about their teams and, and we were just, yeah, we were very uh, star-studded outfit but just couldn't put together results for them. And then 2010-11, uh, when England tore uh, Australia again down under, you uh, you took a consultant role working for the ECB. Um, how did that come about? Um, obviously, England won that series. Um, can you talk about your actual role? Yeah, look, I, sometimes it's a bit overplayed, but obviously I knew Andrew Strauss because of the time in Middlesex, and uh, we got on pretty well there, and and you know, sort of stayed in touch not closely. Um, but uh, and and Angus Fraser was a, a good good friend, we'd stayed in touch uh, for, for some time. So it was probably as a result of them being involved with the England setup that um, you know, they wanted to have a bit of a chat about how, how do you play in Australia? How do you win in Australia? Um, and, uh, and Andy Flower was, was coach and, and I'm knowing Andy again through our games um, against, him, uh, against Zimbabwe. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a, a role that I, I sort of enjoyed in terms of helping them plan how they might go about uh, not only preparing to play there, but how they'd go about playing it from you know the itineraries to you know um, where test matches possibly should be, or how they prepare for certain um, conditions. Um, yeah, lots of you know, I, I guess planning. I wish. I'm sure they, they took some of that on board. So was it, would it be fair to say it was more kind of external factors as opposed to, um, say, like a player analysis kind of um, Oh, well, there's no doubt that they asked about certain players and, uh, you know, you know I, could, I could give them some insights, um, but ultimately it was up to them how they could then either exploit those in, insights or, or, or choose not to use them at all. And then a word on that England side that did win. Was it just um, a case of a team coming together, um, knowing their roles and ultimately executing when it mattered? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, like, again, um, you know, our conversation in the Ashes in 2005, um, there's a lot of things going on in both dressing rooms, you know, and uh, England... I think came to that series well prepared, and I think if you listen to Andy Strauss talk about it, you know they they had to do more than talk; they had to act straight away. And, and Brisbane was their first test, and um, you know, again, as I recall, things didn't start off well, but but they were able to turn that around, you know. And, and then they had some some very very good players in their side who who were performing, they performed, uh, whereas Australia, um, possibly, uh, again, a bit like us, you know, and I, I don't know the insides of the Australian team at that point in time, but maybe they just weren't quite on their game. And, uh, you know, uh, once once England got a bit of a, a roll, uh, then it was, it was quite difficult to obviously uh, to stop. And, uh, you know, they, they just, found ways to get stronger, whereas probably the Australian team were, were finding ways to to, uh, to be less uh, themselves than what they would have liked to be. And then from there, you took um, a director of cricket role uh, working for New Zealand cricket. Um, what are the comparisons like when you compare um, New Zealand cricket and Australia cricket as a kind of 
establishment setup, um, etc. Yeah, well, uh, um, New Zealand basically the, the, the poor relation. I mean, they're just a small country, um, therefore population is is uh, of cricketers is is certainly a heck of a lot less than it is in Australia, and Australia a lot less than England, and so on. But um, you know, their resources in terms of facilities, money, and, um, you know, travel, etc. You know, it. it it's all a different game over there in that respect, you know. Um, they, when I got there, they, you know, they, the Players Association had um, become quite a, a strong and powerful uh, group. And while they were doing some really good things, I think, for New Zealand cricket at the same stage, um, you know, they were, they were creating New Zealand cricket, if you like, a lot of, a lot of headaches as well. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they worked out a relationship um, that benefited certainly the players who were playing for the Black Caps. And, um, and uh, you know, the depth is always a critical issue. So if there's injuries to a few key players, then those whom you draw on are either very young or very inexperienced or both, you know. And so it, it was a... Always a, a, it's always a bit of a balancing act for them to, to try to put forward a really strong team and sustain that over a period of time. But then you see their success um, in, the, in the two World Cups, obviously getting to the final, unlucky not to win the last one. Um, so in terms of their kind of team spirit, etc., do they have something special about them, that kind of intangible that you know, one can't really put your finger on? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, even even in my time, you know, we'd always find New Zealand a tough uh, uh, sort of one-day outfit, and, and we obviously had a uh, pretty interesting uh, test series against them in Australia as well. Um, but yeah, no, they're they're, they're always uh, quite innovative, quite creative, always looking uh, for ways and means to. Find chinks in the armour of their opposition, you know, and I and I think that's just born out of the fact that you know they they do in a sense like an underdog tag, and uh, and are to some degree as I said before quite under resourced, so that they have to be therefore quite resourceful uh, when they're looking at, at playing teams or playing certain games, and uh, that's what they do. They do that really really well, and. Uh, yeah, you would think most of the time they really do get the best from the players that they put on the park. And how would you sum up your time there? Um, there's a lot of talk about the whole captaincy um, thing with Ross Taylor, uh, Brendan McCullum. Just a word on that? Yeah, no, the, uh, John Wright was the coach at that stage and, and um, you know, it did, did turn into a bit of a charade, really, because um, always, I think it was quite a bit of a presidential election. Uh, the, and they both had to put presentations together and we'd sit in the room and listen to to them. Um, and obviously Ross was given the the vote from, from John because it was John's decision and, and uh, Brendan was there. Uh, two different personalities all together. And, uh, you know, I know Brendan from, from IPL days and, and also playing against him, you know, and Brendan's a risk taker. You know, that's, that's what he does. Um, uh, whereas Ross is far more conservative um, and, and obviously different um, personal backgrounds as well that lends itself to the way that both of them conduct themselves 
publicly and privately. Um, so, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, there were things going on with coaching, coaching staff, there was change of uh, CEOs and so on. Um, and eventually, you know, with the change of coach, um, there came a change of captaincy and, and that never sat with me very well. Not necessarily um, the decision, uh, although I probably didn't agree with the decision, but it wasn't necessarily the decision. It was just the way that it, various people went about orchestrating the decision. Um, so, um, but anyway, um, you know, that's all water under the bridge and, um, you know, I was able to have a, a reasonably enjoyable time there. Um, and, 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 you know, I think laid the foundations for, for some of their successes, um, you know, in, in years to come, because again, we really tried to uh, target the, uh, the one day format. Um, but in doing that uh, and in, in improving that, it really gave them confidence and built a group of players that, that were able then to compete in the long form of the game as well. So, um, and, and, you know, there, there's some remnants of that still around. So that's always good to see. And then when your time ended there, um, you moved into your, was it your own uh, coaching business? Um, a word on that? Yes, look, I'd started that business um, even before I left the Australian team in, in uh, 2007 because, I, as I said, I knew 20 months out that I was finishing up with the Australian team. That's if I was given the opportunity, I was going to finish at the World Cup in 2007. So I wanted to take the lessons that I'd learned along the way as a professional coach, plus everything that I'd done beforehand, and they'd be able to take that into the corporate world and help other, you know, other leaders, CEOs, leadership teams, create a high performance environment for their organisations or their businesses. So that was already on the ball. So even when I was in New Zealand doing New Zealand cricket, in a sense, I, I was employed through my business to do that. And so, um, you know, that's what I've continued to do since I left the Australian team through New Zealand um, and, and now to where I am today. So it, it really revolves around much the same as you see in the background. It's, it's trying to create, well, my term is what's your Everest. So Everest was a, a um, term that I coined with the Australian team, you know, that, and Everest was generally about trying to change the game. So that will always be a discussion with business leaders and businesses, you know, so everybody exists in your own marketplace, in your own industry. Um, so why do you want to play the same game as everybody else? Why wouldn't you be looking to uh, play a different game, albeit that you've got to still stay within rules and regulations? But how do you create this competitive advantage? You won't do it by doing the same thing as everybody else does. And, and so that's kind of the starting point. And then um, we talk about individuals, we talk about leaders, and we talk about the team. And, we work our way from base camp, you know, through game plan to, to your actions and behaviours to hopefully a, a summer. Um, and you keep reviewing that because it's about continuous improvement. So um, in, a, in a nutshell, that's what I, what I talk about in the, in the consulting game. If an opportunity ever came up again uh, to work for an international team or another club, franchise, etc., would you consider it? No, I don't think so. I think my, my time is well and truly done. And um, 
I, I quite uh, enjoy, as I said before, if I get the opportunity to, to mentor um, and, and sort of be right in the back drops uh, with, with coaches or people in that environment, really quite enjoy doing that. But uh, no, the, the whole, um, you know, workload that goes into being a head coach is just incredible. And I don't think that I've got the energy anymore to do that. And if I don't have the energy, then I won't be able to, to have people chase their errors. And if I can't do that, then, you know, you just lose the respect and your own credibility within the playing group. And that'd be a terrible state of affairs. And how do you see the game overall right now? Um, and in terms from a coach's perspective, do you see um, the game moving forward, where there be specialist head coaches? So a head coach specific to uh, a longer form uh, test team than the one day team, etc. Or do you still see there being like a one head coach and then filtering down from there? How do you see the game moving forward? Yeah, uh, look, pretty interesting question, I suppose. Isn't it? But I think um, I think there'll always be a short format of the game, and there'll be a long format of the game. And at the moment, in the short format, you know, there's T20 and there's one day cricket. In the long format, there's uh, red ball and there's pink ball. Um, so, you know, I, I think ideally, you know, you'd have a coach for each. Coach for each, and then sitting above that is is really your your, uh, your head coach. Um, but whether or not associations or organisations can afford to do that anymore, I, I doubt that. You know, um, we've seen what's happening in cricket Australia. I'm sure England cricket is a little bit the same. Uh, certainly, other cricket nations around the world, and other sporting nations around the world, or sporting uh, franchises or clubs around the world, have, have all cut back on staff. Uh, simply because, you know, it's just grown out of proportion probably and now they can no longer afford it because, you know, there's the sport on, there isn't the broadcast rights available. Um, you know, people are now preferring to stream it if they can, you know, uh, and, and be consumers in a, in a different way. So, um, no, I, I think um, it, it, it will still see possibly less specialist coaches in terms of, um, you know, running teams. But I think what is and will change and has been changing is that the, the really short form of the game, T20 game, is where children and, and people who consume the game will come from, as opposed to when I was growing up, you came from the long form of the game. So you came from test cricket and and gradually you, you kind of wean yourself onto the short form of the game. Well, I think in the future it will be the other way around. And I think, you know, the T20 format, possibly the 50 over format, although it may vary a little bit, um, you know, that's where people are going to want to consume and learn and, and, uh, and uh, interact with the game of cricket. And so therefore coaches and so on and administrators and everybody else have got to, I think, since understand that that's the foundation of the game. And then what's required, if you want to play long format, then you've got to work out how you adapt those skills to the long format, as opposed to the way it was before that you adapted your long form skills to the short form. So I think that for me is, is uh, one of the biggest changes that, that everybody will need to address, but that will be dependent upon, as I said, the ICC making some really 
clear decisions about where all these things fit. Uh, there are you know, so many variations now. You know, with South Africa developing a, a new form of uh, T5 or whatever it's called, uh, England, the 100 ball uh, game. You can understand why they're doing it, but it's just confusing the whole marketplace altogether. You know, and I think the ICC is, rather than being a toothless tiger, it's, it's going to have to um, assert itself make it very clear about what are the, 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 the formats of the game that um, they believe are the most um, important uh, formats for um, broadcasters, consumers, players, officials and so on. And then just to end on, if say for example a youngster came up to you and said, coach give me some, give me, give me your best piece of advice um, what would it be? Like everything in life, you, you, you just got to enjoy what you're doing. You know, so um, if you want to play, then play to enjoy it, first of all, and, and keep the enjoyment. If you play to enjoy it and keep the enjoyment, then like anything, you'll just work exceptionally hard at getting better and better and better because it doesn't feel like working hard. It's just something that you really enjoy doing. So, you know, that's always, I think, the... the the most important thing, just keep enjoying uh, what you're doing. Uh, and probably you'll be tested at a certain time, so cling on to why you enjoy playing cricket because that's the essence. Perfect. John, thank you very much for your time. Um, brilliant to talk through your career. And yeah, all the best for the, for, for the months ahead. Oh, now thank you and same to you over there. And uh, yes, we all hope that um, things um, certainly don't get worse than what they are, but uh, it'll take a little while for us to get on top of this thing. But um, you know, if everybody's in it together, then we'll, we'll beat it. Yep, stay safe for us. Just like any good team. Yeah. <laughs> the Neo Cagram Cricket Last Stories, John Buchanan. Thank you.